Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I am welcoming Nako Nolan. Nako has been in law enforcement for almost three decades and has served with both the NYPD and the LAPD, where he is now currently a detective sergeant. Nako has served in a range of units over his career, including gang, vice, narcotics, major crimes, counterterrorism, and more, all of which, or at least most of which, we'll get to talk about. We'll also talk about what it's like to be in law enforcement in the two largest cities in the country, two cities that could not be more different, and both of which I have lived in. Nako, welcome. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Abby. I am particularly thrilled to have you because, as I told you in our pre-interview, LAPD and NYPD are very near and dear to my heart. I lived in Los Angeles just a few years before you got there in the early 90s. I was there during the Rodney King riots. And then we discovered that we live next door to each other, although not at the same time. <laughs> How wild is that? I know. It's insane. And then we both lived in New York City during 9-11. So that is something we'll touch on. We have that shared experience. But when I, I want to set it up, I know that you are originally from Queens and tested for NYPD, but ended up starting with LAPD. So you want to tell me your your story, your beginnings? Sure. Um, they have a program there that you could start when you're 18 as like a volunteer police officer. And across the country, they call it reserve police officer. And in New York City, it's called auxiliary police officer. So I did that before you could legally become you know, a sworn, full-time sworn officer at 21. So I did that for a few years and at the 104 precinct, which is my resident mm. precinct in Queens. And at the time in the 90s, it was extremely competitive to become an NYPD cop. And the process is kind of convoluted. You can get 100 on the test and not get hired. It's almost a lottery system. They Put, they put you in bands. So you're like in band one is everyone from 90 to 100. But if you got 100, you could be like the, maybe like the 8,000th guy that gets thrown into that band. So you won't necessarily get called first. So I was one of those guys that was got shoved onto into the back burner. And you take the test really early. I believe I took the, my first test at 16 and a half, which was the earliest you could take it. And because everyone knows you're going to be waiting for a long time. If you started that early at 16, it sounds like you knew law enforcement was the career you wanted early on. Oh, absolutely. Probably 12, 13 years old. Yeah, I knew this is what I wanted to do really early age. I got, I got really lucky with that. Here I am, you know, almost three decades of having fun, being a cop, being a detective. So when you said you knew law enforcement was what you wanted, how did you know? Good question. How did I know? Well, a lot of it was just uh, witnessing law enforcement in progress, seeing people being arrested, seeing, you know, meeting police officers through the years in my neighborhood, hearing the stories from my uncle who was a cop and hearing about stories about my great grandfather who was a NYPD cop that was a harbor on harbor patrol you know, chasing pirates back in the day in the New York Harbor. So it was always, always fascinated me. And I always had that curiosity, I think, where that's why I'm a detective. I just love peering into 
the other side of life and, you know, getting into the, the psychological side, what makes people tick, you know, how to help, of course, you know, being a problem solver. It was outdoors. It wasn't stuck behind a desk. It was fun and it had a purpose. So it just ticked off so many boxes. And I was like, this is definitely what I want to do. So with New York, basically you were on a waiting list. Mm-hmm. Um, LA opened up an opportunity. I think what you said is you could go out and you could do the whole test in a few days. So you weren't flying back and forth. And then, so you got on to LA, was it 96? Yes. Okay. Tested in 95, came during the OJ trial, which was right. going on at the time, which is really interesting. And then um, got the call to come out in 1996. They had a really cool out-of-town testing process, which was innovative at the time, where you could bang out the whole thing in, in four or five days or so, which I did, as opposed to NYPD, where it was like dribs and drabs. You're doing it for like, you know, six months to a year to keep calling you back, or I do this, then come back, do that. And um, But yeah, LA just said, Let's, uh, we could bang this all out for out-of-town people so you don't have to spend money coming back and forth flying. You mentioned the OJ trial. So, and you said that was interesting. So what do you mean by that was interesting? I know it was interesting, but mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you mean? So I think it was like one of the first trials that were televised, like core TV might've been new, you know, mm-hmm. the trials being put on TV was new. And of course it was just the, you know, like they say the trial of the century. So when I came out here, all the testing process was done in downtown LA where the trial was happening. So you'd see people, all these, you know, wackos running around downtown with signs and OJ didn't do it. OJ did it and people protesting, doing whatever. So it was right in your face. And of course, you know, you hear about Rockingham and Bundy. So we got the rental car and we're like, all right, let's find these places and see what's going on. So we were, we were thrust right into the middle of it. So did you meet detectives who had been on the case? I would assume. Later on I did. Yeah. One of my bosses was Mark Furman's partner, and then I got to read some of his reports that he still had and hear some of his stories, which was really interesting. And yeah, I did meet some of the, the guys in the periphery that weren't necessarily on the investigation, but they're at, they were at the crime scene. Uh, one of my buddies, Dan, was, I don't know, he had the misfortune or fortune, I don't know if you would what you could call it, but he was at the Rodney King scene as like a, mm. a probationary officer. And then later on, he was at the OJ crime scene. Uh, it was pretty funny. I think, I think they put him on a stand and they were grilling him because he was petting OJ's dog, which had blood on it. He's a oh, very dear. fun-loving guy. And he's, he's petting a dog, but then, you know, unbeknownst to him, he's like contaminating evidence. So <laughs> Yeah, so I got to meet some people that were in and around that whole debacle. Well, and we both mentioned the riots and I, as I said, lived through it. Did it give you pause to join a department that had just gone through this very public, I don't know what you want to call it, incident, certainly being viewed as racist. And even the OJ trial, when you look at the documentaries, they certainly position it as a very race-based time. Sure. Sure. It was, I see all those things as challenges and, you know, coming from the NYPD side of the house, we've had scandal upon scandal. So it was just like, it's just part of being a, being in a, being a cop It's just, you have to deal with these issues of, um, whether it's right or wrong of, uh, knuckleheads doing stupid things or people being accused of things, whether it's, it happened or it didn't, 
like that's just the norm. I mean, it's that's the environment you're going in. It's going to be tough. It's not going to be easy, but it's sure going to be fun. So I had yeah plenty of family members and friends say, hey, yeah, it's a great job, but hey, look out for these pitfalls. You could get jammed up working narcotics. I remember just my dad always telling me, do whatever you want to do uh, on a police department. Just don't join narcotics. So, so what did I do? Of course, <laughs> later on in my career, I joined narcotics. narcotics. And my dad was like, oh, I'm like, don't worry. Why did he say that? Just in, in New York, you know, the, most of the scandals were narcotics based, you know, of people uh, stealing money, you know, robbing drug dealers and all that. It was, it was, um, mm. it had that fair share of scandals. So he just, and, and during those scandals, um, there's a lot of blowback, like we'll probably get into later on and in uh, the Rampart scandal, where you could be completely innocent, never did anything wrong, and still get hit with the shrapnel and get fired, possibly jailed and serve time. So the police department, it's, yeah, you, you're constantly walking a tightrope. It's uh, landmines everywhere. And unfortunately, a lot of good cops get hurt when they're completely in the right. So it's mm-hmm. tough. It's tough. I consider myself lucky to be doing this for that long. And I haven't, haven't had any of that, but I've had friends that have, unfortunately. Yeah. What scandals in New York would, would I know? There was the, um, whew, there's so many. Well, we the don't. Ones, <laughs> yeah, there was the ones that were going on when I was coming up. There was something called the Mullen Commission. That was the aftermath of a cop named Mike Dowd, who worked mm. the 7-5 precinct, which was in East New York. There's a fascinating documentary called The 7-5. And uh, later on, become a, we became associates. And he is a very controversial uh, controversial figure. And he had a crew of cops that were working in conjunction with um, high-level narcotics dealers and were doing protection for the most part. And then later on became dealers themselves, mm. ended up getting arrested, doing time, horrible, despicable acts. But Mike turned his life around, got sober, and is doing trying to be a man of service and work with police departments to you know, show them the pitfalls of how he went down that road and, um, you know, trying to right some wrongs in his life. And in the police department, pretty much if you're a dirty cop, you're written off for the, your persona non grata and rightly so. I mean, it, that, that scandal and other scandals that happen in all different police departments, it sets us back, uh, like the Rampart scandal with Rafael Perez that sent us back at least a decade and same thing with NYPD. It sets you back about a decade, it derodes um, public trust. It adds a whole bunch of layers of bureaucratic process that you have to go through. The public never knows we're the hardest on each other than the public ever will be. It's a dirty little secret that the majority of internal affairs complaints derive from internal, from cops snitching on all the cops. There's this whole blue wall of silence and cops never turning cops like, trust me, uh, people that work internal fans will tell you everything is internally driven of people dropping a dime on other cops and rightfully so if someone's doing something wrong we need them out so we could prevent a scandal or someone getting hurt or whatever it is it's 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 a it's a huge thing and and now more than ever we, we the yeah. public trust and is uh, at the bottom so but a lot of people just don't hear about that there's this narrative of that we protect each other at all costs and Sure, that's happened, but the majority of the guys out there are 
dropping dimes on cops left and right. Interesting. You go, I mean, having lived in both cities, you go from New York where you grew up and you start a law enforcement career, which is challenging to begin with. And then you started in a city that couldn't be much different than New York. Where did you patrol? After the academy, I checked into Hollywood Division on uh, Wilcox Avenue. It was great because it was like Times Square was in the 80s and 90s. So I felt right at home. (laughs) And didn't you say, did I believe I heard you say that you patrolled Skid Row or was that later? That was later on in the mid, mid-2000s. mid Okay. So let's stick with uh, patrol from Hollywood. So you and I both lived in Hollywood. <laughs> and I wouldn't say it's the nicest area of Los Angeles. Agreed or not agreed? It's, it's got um, a lot of layers to it. Some yeah. great areas. There's some grimy areas and middle-class areas. Right. But it's, it's never dull. <laughs> it's it's exciting. And so what was it like to patrol in Hollywood? I mean, first of all, did you have a Thomas guide to get around? There was no GPS back then. And it's a vast city. I mean, it, yeah. it is a grid. You know, the thing about LA that made it easy for me, who who's directionally challenged, it was a grid. So the Thomas guide. Yeah. So no one knows what that is. <laughs> but not, not anymore. Right. Yeah. Thomas <laughs> so, guide's pretty much a basically a, a book of maps that lets you get around with uh, with grid markers and such. So Did Hollywood, you use- oh, definitely. Hollywood's <laughs> pretty much a grid, but when you get into the Hollywood Hills, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. So mm-hmm. we'd have these things called a street guide where it would tell you, you'd look up whatever street you're looking in and then they're like, make a left here, make a right there, make a left here. And when you're going lights and sirens yeah. as the passenger and you're trying to tell your driver, and uh, up in the Hollywood Hills, you had a lot of foliage and trees and some signs that just aren't even there. It was pretty hairy. But after a while, your, your training officer would, um, he would quiz you on all the streets, all, you know, uh-huh. pretty much all the majors and all that, the, at least the one I had. And he would draw uh, streets and, and kind of a, a rough map. And it's like, all right, what's this? What's that? And I've always been fascinated by maps and globes and such. So I picked it up real quick. Okay. And so were you a two-man car? Yes, primarily two-man car. And then as you're getting near the end of probation, you would start working by yourself, like handling, say, burglaries that were in the past or low-level things. So you're kind of um, a, a good support system. And But then me being me, I would just go out there and try to arrest people. So <laughs> I, would, I would end up arresting guys and, and bring them back to the station. And the sergeant's like, uh, you know, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be, you know, taking reports. I'm like, well, it technically is, it's, is an arrest report. It's a report. And, uh, you know, and I would, you know, kind of make up something I'm like this guy basically just jumped into the car. I had to arrest him. So, <laughs> <laughs> but what kind yeah. of crimes were you seeing? What were you arresting people for? I mean, I, I, I guess it's the same everywhere, but it seems like Hollywood's different. At the time, I was specializing in what's called uh, 11550 health and safety code is under the influence of narcotics. So if someone's walking in the street and they're high on narcotics, you could be arrested. It's pretty much like a possession arrest, but the uh, the possession's internal. So at the time in Hollywood, there were what, what was referred to as tweakers, and mm. that's methamphetamine users. And... Hollywood was littered with tweakers. Everywhere you go, there were uh, guys high on methamphetamine. 
And it wasn't just we were targeting them just because of being high, but it's these particular people that were out in the street were the ones that were responsible for all the uh, car break-ins, burglaries, that type of thing. And so you'd use it as a, a predicate to go into bigger things. So you'd see someone who's obviously under the influence, you'd stop them and detain them. Uh, a lot in Hollywood, we get a lot of um, expats from all over. So you'd get a lot of fugitives that wanted mm-hmm. for bigger things, or the guy just happened to be uh, selling drugs himself or had a weapon on him, had a, a gun. So it was, it was your foot in the door. So, so it's just like mostly on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, definitely. Hollywood and Wilcox Northeast corner. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, this guy named Bob Deemer is awesome cop. He, uh, technical advisor for a de- director called Michael Mann. He was the one that put me under his wing and taught me how to identify these users and articulate it in court. So right out of the gate, I would shoot to Hollywood and Wilcox. It was this place called Tommy's Burgers. And this was just like Grand Central Station for drug users. And you, you could pretty much tap anybody on the shoulder and talk to them. And you'd see their eyes were dilated to like 9.0 millimeters and, you know, jabbering faster than I'm talking. And it's just all the classic signs and symptoms of being under influence. And I'd take them and drag them right back to the station. And my sergeant's like, what the hell are you doing here? You just, didn't you just get... <laughs> You leave the station, I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. well, I already got someone. So <laughs> <laughs> once you fulfill your one year of uh, rookie time at LAPD, then they um, transfer you out and you go to another patrol division, which uh, ended up going to was called a uh, Van Nuys division. That's up in an area called the San Fernando Valley, more of a blue collar, uh, suburban type of vibe, chock full of crime. Nonetheless, it's still city of los angeles but compared to downtown la and south central that had a you know completely different vibe right was the gang unit crashed unit the first unit you were on or were you on were you almost okay i went i went went to van nuys and you have to do patrol so i did my patrol time cut my teeth up there and got offered a spot in what's called the career criminal unit okay It it was a brand new unit at the time kind of a pilot program what is a career criminal unit? Career criminal unit, we worked in plain clothes. We didn't have mm. a caseload. Everything was self-initiated, proactive. Up in the valley at the time, there were a lot of white prison gangs operating. So Aryan Brotherhood, Nazi Lowriders, Public Enemy Number 1, and uh, Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. That All those things, all those type of gangs really intrigued me because in New York City, they didn't really have, you know, white prison street gangs type of thing. So when you say prison gang, I'm assuming, so you're saying a prison gang on the streets? It, they, they're kind of a hybrid, you know. Oh, because they're the, being run from the guys in the prison. They, yeah, that they, they originate in a prison, but then oh. these, these guys end up getting out and committing crime on the street and end up getting, we send them back. So there's an element, there's there's always different cells that are operating on the street and, uh, you know, the associates. How many gangs can you have? How how can you start a new gang? Like, (laughs) you know what it is, they, they, they continuously morph. So once they get targeted, you know, by the feds, by us, by (laughs) the California department of corrections, they, they get dismantled and not broken down, but kind of marginalized. So like the white gangs, we were we were targeting at the time, California Department of Corrections ended up putting them all, anytime they would hit the prison yard, they would get sent to what's called a SHU, security housing unit. 
once these guys would hit the system, they would have to be slammed down in Pelican Bay or Corcoran, which is 24-7 by themselves, or maybe another prisoner. They hated that. They wanted to be on the general population. So what, what do they do? They start, start little subsidiary subgroups of what was called Nazi lowriders or public mm. enemy number one. And those guys weren't at the time deemed prison gangs. So they were able to operate freely within the jail system and the prison system. And then as the law catches up to them, they would get deemed prison gang and gets ended up getting sent to the shoe. So, and you're saying they're white, these were all white guys. Yes. Yes. Okay. Although, I mean, you'd find, uh, you know, uh, hybrids, you know, like, half black guys in there, you know, mm -hmm. half Hispanic, um, Jewish guys with uh, Aryan Brotherhood tattoos with swastikas. It was crazy. I mean, one of the most notorious Aryan Brotherhood members was a guy named Silverstein. So, man, his parents must have really hated him. <laughs> like, you're a Jew and you're in the Aryan Brotherhood. It's like, how does that work? And you have a swastika on you? God. You know. So what kind of things were you encountering then with these guys? They're the... Probably the, they, they are the smallest prison gang, but they were the fiercest because mm. they had to be. All these gangs, you know, like organized crime, they always end up targeting their own, their own race for the most part. And so they were extortion, uh, murder for hire, home invasions they were big in. And really? of course, of course, you know, the usual drug dealing, uh, some strong arm robberies, that type of thing. Usually very, very violent. But for the most part, gangs gangs and, and especially prison gangs it's it's all almost 100 percent they're killing off themselves so so were you a proactive unit the way a gang unit typically is where you're kind of hang you know you're a presence you're not necessarily out there arresting or was were you primarily arresting we drove all the investigations you know we would help out if someone came to us said hey we need this and this done or whatever um we were always there as a support unit in the career criminal unit, but everything was self-initiated. Home invasions have to be bad. I mean, because home invasion is when the people are home. It's it's like I'd much rather have my home burglarized than to be home. Absolutely. There was one just happened the other day in Bel Air where a 60 and a 70-year-old couple ended up um, being the victims of a home invasion and uh, getting hurt in the process, which really broke my heart. It's like, I think... To me, if you injure a senior citizen or involve them in some type of crime, that should be a life sentence. Like, you don't mess with senior citizens. I mean, yeah. very vulnerable kids and seniors, we have to protect them at all costs and have zero tolerance for that. Yeah, very, very dangerous scenario. And it's, uh, if you've been watching the news out here in LA, it's been, it, it's slowed down somewhat, but it, it was post 2020, it was off the hook. Home invasions galore. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Very. I mean, it's like you said, it's, uh, yeah, come in, break in my house. Not cool. You feel violated. But when you're in bed and there's someone rampaging through your house and they tie you up with uh, bungee cords or whatever, that's the worst. Yeah. That's my biggest fear. Does this lead to the gang unit? Yes. Yeah. The next step was working crash, which uh, was the LAPD's anti-gang unit. It stands for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. And a little interesting tidbit, Daryl Gates, when it, it first hit the scene, it was called Trash. Oh, no. Total, total Resources <laughs> Against Street Hoodlums. So 
that didn't last too long. People didn't like the kids being arrested by the trash unit. You know, the kids weren't <laughs> garbage, so that morphed into um, community resources against street hoodlums. So, but hoodlums is not an entirely. <laughs> Uh, it's very 50s <laughs> yeah. it's very yeah very bowery bowery boys esque. <laughs> so tell me about the crash unit it was very similar to the curriculum unit but it had a different emphasis uh, crash is an intelligence gathering unit so our mission was to obtain as much intelligence from uh, our investigations and dealing with the, uh, your assigned gangs and supporting the field detective unit. So you in a, in a detective division at your regular station, so like say Hollywood or Van Nuys, they have you know burglary detectives, robbery detectives, uh, major assault crimes. So any of those detective units that had something with a gang member involved, they go to the crash unit. They're like, hey, I think this guy, based on surveillance photos or victim statements or whatever, if they said something, uh, that would make them think it was a gang member, they would come to us. Do you know who this is? Uh, and as a crash cop, say, you're, you're assigned sp- specific gangs based on your expertise. And you'd say, yeah, I, either, I know that guy. Or or we'd have uh, mug shots. I'll, I'll go out and do a photo array with your, uh, your victim and see what he could pick out. It was a support unit, um, an intelligence gathering unit, and also a proactive unit. So do field interviews, arrests, do surveillance, all on gang members. And a side component of that, while I was in there, we ended up working with um, ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms in what's known as a storefront operation. Long story short, ATF, they, we would, we, municipal police departments in big cities will work in conjunction with the feds to you know, leverage, maximize resources. So we'd arrest gang members and and prosecute them federally under their predicates. So the feds have a ton of money. They're like, hey, we want to set up a store, a fake store, and you guys work undercover with the basis of buying stolen property, guns, what have you. Then whoever brings in these stolen items or whatever, illegal items, will identify them and then arrest them at the later date under federal charges. Very, it was an anomaly, but not every crash unit gets involved in something like that. We did because we worked what was called a bureau crash unit. So instead of just being single focused, like in just Hollywood or Van Nuys division, we had the whole valley. So we had about, I don't know what it is now, like five or six divisions responsibility for. So it was um, trying to be a force multiplier out there. And then you referenced the Rampart sc- scandal. So this was this involved one group with within crash that were based at the rampart precinct is that correct that's why no yeah, yeah it's a, it's yeah more or less it was a rampart division there were two mm-hmm. individuals that ended up it's a it's a long long story but uh someone uh, a cop ended up committing a bank robbery another cop ended up taking narcotics from the property room and selling it out on the street and when he got arrested and all these other guys that end up getting arrested, they turned, um, you know, cooperating witness. And then the DA's office, like, okay, they call it like almost like queen for a day. You have immunity so, somewhat or limited immunity. Tell us what you know. 
So they thought they were going to tell them about their buddies that were doing these bank robberies and other nefarious crimes, you know, shooting gang members or whatever. And they ended up uh, pointing the finger and shielding their friends and pointing the finger at other cops that weren't guilty of anything. But the DA's office and the police department ran with it. And people, like I said, one of my buddies that ended up getting hit by the shrapnel of it, he worked with a dirty cop named uh, Rafael Perez. And he erroneously pointed him out and saying that, yeah, this guy, you know, wrote a false report. Uh, he said he um, got run over by some gangster and that never happened. And he ended up having to go to court. State court was found factually innocent by the judge and then ended up going to, to reclaim his name. And all the other guys that were erroneously targeted ended up going to federal court and suing the department and the DA's office civilly and ended up being awarded like $15 million uh, in penalties or what have you. But throughout the process, I mean, they got arrested, they went to trial, they had their houses tossed in search warrants, they got their names dragged through the mud. I mean, it was a huge ordeal. It's like they would have paid $15 million for that not to happen if they had that. You know, lives are just turned inside out. People committed suicide, mm. overdosed, marriages were torn apart. And then some cops that uh, were actually were doing uh, some bad things, you know, through the fallout, not necessarily of Rafael Perez, but of the investigators assigned to this task force were uncovering things. And um, some people ended up getting sent to prison. So again, very tumultuous times, set us back easily a decade, cost the city uh, millions upon millions, uh, could have bankrupted the city. I think the credit rating went down. Huge, huge effects. So... Mm. And changed and ended up changing policy. Recruitment went down, morale went down, arrest went down, and then crime went up. So, and you were put under a DOJ consent decree after that. Yes, I think um, maybe about two thousand one or so, two thousand. The feds jumped in and put us under a consent decree, which was um, ended up being a good thing. It really tightened up a lot of um, things that were done uh, loosely. So just, you know, administratively. So right. it, ultimately it was a good thing. So that's one of our core values is quality through continuous improvement. So we took that by the, by the horns and, and ran with it and it became better. You know, the, Seattle has been under consent decree for more than a decade. And I do think it's made the department better. I'm sure it wasn't easy, but I think for you, you know, the lack of the, the hit to morale has to be the hardest among the hardest things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you see friends and family, good people being dragged through the mud and their family suffering, I mean, it was just, it was horrendous. So from there, do you want to keep going? How many more units do you have in, in LA before <laughs> you go to New York? <laughs> oh, I, I, I did a little stint in, went back to Hollywood and joined what's called the prostitution enforcement detail. We were like the foot soldiers for the vice unit where mm. we were a support element in uniform and we would uh, supplement the vice unit. So again, it was, you know, all officer initiated. At the time, Hollywood Division spearheaded what is uh, became a state law where you could target prostitutes for, it was called loitering for the purpose of prostitution. So you didn't have to see them actually engaging in prostitution it was um, it was almost like a future crime. If you had prior knowledge that they were a prostitute, if you dealt with them before and you saw them engage in certain acts, 
you know, I think it was like he had to see two or three more acts and uh, you could arrest him for that. So it was, you know, it was, it was very proactive work. Uh, Governor Newsom just uh, overturned that law and got rid of it. So now prostitution in LA is just rampant. I mean, there's just street walkers everywhere where you can go down a street at five in the morning and it's traffic up the yin yang. It's like, there's no traffic at five in the morning on the streets. It's causing traffic jams from guys going in circles and talking to them and doing all types of stupid stuff. Why did he uh, get rid of it? He claimed it. Uh, the police were in, it was the law was being unfairly targeting uh, people of color. So prostitutes, you know, in certain areas, depending on, you know, if you're in South Central, you're going to be dealing with people of color. I mean, if you're in white areas, you're going to be dealing with white areas. So just, it is what it is. So it's a lot of unraveling of laws that were effective. And uh, we'll see where this takes us. You know, it's, we're a part of this social experiment. Very frustrating, uh, but challenging at the same time. So, All right. So you're in vice arresting prostitutes. You arrest the pimps too? Yes. <laughs> just, uh, okay. That's, that's, yeah. That, <laughs> When you work undercover vice, that's the mm. that's the ultimate goal is to get to the pimp. Okay. Um, the girls, they're the victims at the end of the day. And so it was always arrest the girls and try to get them to turn on that pimp and gather intelligence and, and what have you uh, to get to the main players. Okay. So do are we flying to New York now? Are, are we at 2000? <laughs> yes, we made it to 2000 BC. <laughs> but you went back to New York for to be closer mm -hmm. to family for a few years. Yes. Had to clean up some family business, went to NYPD. And I have to go through the academy all over again. Six months. It was like Groundhog Day. But Did you have to test again? Yes. Had to test, test. Test and go through the whole um, rigmarole. the whole rigmarole once again that's that's brutal i mean i've never been a cop i've never tested i've never been the academy but i've heard new york is particularly tough and then typically if you've been a cop for a number of years you can lateral and you don't have to go through all of that yes but they they start you is there a reason for that it, you know what just nypd is his own animal and they march to their own beat LAPD now they have a lateral program. Before they never did, mm. and NYPD I don't think they have a lateral program to this day. They want to, if you want the job, you got to go through six months uh, like wow. everyone else. So it's a good and bad thing. So not so great for recruiting, but right, hey, you're gonna you're gonna learn it their way. That's for sure. And I should mention, which we talked about in the preview, and which shocked me, is that NYPD, which I actually kind of knew, is a little over thirty thousand. And you told me LAPD is a little over 9,000. Yeah, when I, when I checked in with NYPD, we were hovering around 40,000. It's it's dipped down to 30,000 now. Uh, but uh, LAPD's traditionally been around 9,000 to 10,000. I was just shocked by that because the, the two largest cities in the country, LA is so vast. Yes. How is it so much smaller? New York has a greater population. We have a bigger square miles. Mm. So we've, before defunding was a thing, we were always defunded. We were always under-resourced. Hmm. We were always, um, we were a priority, but not really. Unfortunately, we fell victim to chiefs of police in the past having very contentious relations with the city council and the mayor. So 
they were always playing these games of you know one-upsmanship. And so what do you do to one-up someone is not fully fund them. So we were always historically a small police department. We were kind of modeled off of the, the Marine Corps, which uh, the Marine Corps is very hardcore branch of the armed forces, small but mighty. And NYPD was based off of the Army, very large organization, very bureaucratic, very slow moving. So the LAPD at the time always prided themselves on being small, but very hard hitting, very effective and very mobile. You know, they were the first ones. Very, everything was vehicle driven or airborne driven with a oh, vast yeah. air support division. So it was, <laughs> a lot of it was based off of, you know, kind of like Vietnam era tactics. So for better or worse, there was some things where we alienated a lot of people, but at the same time was very effective where you were, had a proactive police department out there that was small. So they had to give the illusion that we were everywhere and you would have to, you know, put people in line or make them think that, hey, if they stepped out of the, out of the margins, they were going to be getting dealt with. And NYPD had a different type of mentality at the time, where it was like, if you did something, we'll get to you eventually. So it was very more of a permissive, friendly neighborhood vibe as opposed to L.A., where it's very different community relations wise. So I just have to uh, a side note. When I moved to L.A., I'm I've come from the Midwest. Like I'm a, I'm young, naive and I'm living in the apartment where the street where we both lived. And this is the early 90s. So I, there was no Internet and I didn't watch police TV shows. So I didn't know LAPD had a chopper unit or whatever you call it. Yes. And I'm in bed asleep and I hear choppers. And you mentioned Vietnam. I woke up. I was so scared. I thought the country was at war. I thought there were 12 choppers out there mm-hmm. and scared me to death. And it was probably just one chopper. But this is a an active this is a tool that you guys use the choppers are a big deal oh absolutely it's it's ingratiated itself into pop culture where there was a great movie called blue thunder that's about the air support unit uh song by the chili peppers i think called police helicopter it's yeah if you grew up in la or lived in la it's just synonymous with la there's a pursuit at least one one to two pursuits a day and a necessity for the air unit yeah. to maintain yeah. control of the scene. And like I said, we're the, we have the largest you know, square mileage compared to NYPD. So a right. lot of times the air unit would be the first unit on the scene, especially in like the San Fernando Valley where you could have four or five police cars and you could have like going lights and sirens going you know, 90 miles an hour. It'll still take you, you know, five right. to seven minutes to get there, if not more. And the air unit will be on it you know, at a drop of a hat, you know, based on where they're at. So it was a necessity, but it was also a tactic, you know, from that Vietnam era of, you know, controlling the ground from the air type of thing. So definitely a force multiplier, great support unit type of thing. All right. Okay. So you, we get to New York. Where did you patrol? Yeah, I did my field train. It's called field training and, right. um, in Manhattan. And then, um, Rocked over to the 8-3 precinct in Bushwick, Brooklyn upon graduation, which in 2000 was uh, they uh, was referred to as an A-house. In NYPD jargon, They each precinct is either an A-house, a B-house, or a C-house. So A was rock and roll, just nonstop crime, 
what was referred to like a ghetto ghetto precinct. B house would be just something like kind of a you know middle class neighborhoods with some crime here and there, and a C house would be like a sleepy hollow type of thing. So yeah, I ended up going to a real one of the busiest stations in precincts in New York City. Now it's since gentrified, it's gotten safer, but at the time it was um, it was uh, rock and roll. It was great. <laughs> what kind of crimes? What kind of? And first of all, it's got to be kind of hard to patrol in New York where there's so much. I mean, I know there's traffic in L.A., but people can actually pull over. Where <laughs> in New York, there's nowhere to pull over. I mean, I have never could figure out how you could patrol or go lights and sirens. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a. Uh... It, it, there's no parking in Brooklyn or New York City in general. So everyone's, especially in the ghetto neighborhoods, people are double parked, uh, triple parked. Up, if you're up in the Bronx, they invented triple parking. Brooklyn, everyone's <laughs> double parked. Everyone's on a on a hydrant. It's it's yeah. horrible. Traffic was a, an issue. So let's let's um, let's go to 9/11. Mm-hmm. Um, how did the day unfold for you? I was on a regular day off visiting some family in upstate New York, up in the Catskill Mountains. And if the first plane hit the tower, my dad uh, wakes me up. He's like, hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. Wasn't a big thing, really, because I remember hearing about the Empire State Building getting um, struck by a plane. So it was just the same thing, like everyone else thought, maybe a small, small Cessna or whatever prop plane. Went back to sleep, and then uh, I got the wake up. I'm like, what the hell happened? What now? He's like, another plane just hit the World Trade Center. I'm like, oh shit. I'm like, we're at war. Boom. Mm -hmm. You know, DEFCON 4 Mm -hmm. up, you know, gather up the belongings. Um, Let's see if we can get back to uh, New York City and see how we could help out. So had to be hard to get back in. We thought it would be, but the troopers and everyone else at like New York City immediately got locked down except for you know, first responders and what have you. So tell me about, did you end up having to go there? Yeah, I ended up, I ended up spending at least, I think it had to be almost close to a year there of various duties. So in the beginning it was, you know, rescue and recovery, which quickly went into, there was, we, we didn't find any live people, I should say. We found body parts and, and, and bodies here and there. And so we'd, split up the time of uh, what was called the pile of um, mm. just removing debris, trying to find items of evidence and, you know, just trying to unearth what just happened. Every day was a different thing. You would, you would have a different detail that you were you could be on. So it could be like on a perimeter or security type of detail. Every day was something new. But And then on the off days, you would um, – I, I did. I know a lot of cops did. We would um, – almost became like an obsession. You open up the newspaper and you would find they would have different funerals of all victims from September 11th. So it was like constantly either working or going to a funeral, which was just part of the reason I like doing these things. It kind of like spurs memories and and brings back things I forgot. It was just kind of like that one year was like a black hole to me for memory wise. I was just, you know, sleep deprived and Morale was crushed. It was um, it was really tough. Really, don't talk about the stuff unless I get together with some buddies that were there, which is rare. Right. Well, did your precinct, did your guys respond that morning? Did oh, all yeah, precincts? Was, oh, it was all hands on deck for the most mm-hmm. part. Yeah. 
you know, get in where you could fit in. Yeah. You know, just try to be, try to be proactive, try to do something. And, but yeah, everyone that would die pretty much, you know, died upon impact. Right. Of, uh, the tower is coming down, but you just, we didn't know there was no blueprint for that. We, right. we were holding that hope. We we're like, right. uh, tough to talk about, but you would, there were various, uh, subway lines running in, underneath the world trade center. So in, in, um, in our mind or in my mind, I was thinking is there's gotta be pockets of where there are people still with They just can't communicate that they're there. So right. it was always that dream of unearthing whatever type of concrete material and like, here we are. And you, you know, you find a squad yeah. of cops or firemen or, you know, workers that were in the trade center. And it's like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, we gotta find that pocket. And, you know, unfortunately we never did. Right. I remember, I remember I was, uh, all the hospitals were, all the doctors, all the emergency rooms were standing by for people. Uh, that's what I heard, yeah. People who never came. And I think one of the hardest parts was the the people with the signs saying, with their, my father or my sister or my son, have you seen them? All those flyers, you know, kind of like what you were saying. It's like, oh yeah, we we think they're still alive, and then this crushing realization that, oh yeah, there were handmade, homemade, uh, missing persons posters just everywhere, and you know, you'd stop and read them, and man, it was just, it just hit you to the, you know, it was just as a gut, gut punch every time you saw that, but you know, but being down there physically trying to save people and finding there's no one to save. I can't imagine. Yes. Yeah. It was emotions nonstop. Well, and you talked about, and I remember these sign people holding signs, people applauding you as you came in on the highway, people hugging you, criminals hugging you, crime. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of the, Tell me about that. Yeah, it was phenomenal. We we get shipped in with a uh, in uh, like a kind of line bands, and we're just beat. So you're you're just dead tired. You know, physically exhausted, mentally exhausted. And and as you're getting closer and closer to the World Trade Center site, there were these people. I don't know where they're from, I'd, but God bless them. I'd love to meet one one day that was there, and they were holding up signs. You know, we love NYPD, fire department, this and that. Uh, stay strong, you know, we, we back you, just all these morale boosting signs. So completely exhausted and you'd hear people cheering and all of a sudden, oh, that's them. And you see all these people and then boom, you just morale would go through the roof. Yeah. And uh, it was it was beautiful, really bonded, you know, put America to where it was supposed to be. You know, it's yeah. the United States of America and that unfortunately it takes tragedies to unite us. So yeah. but we were definitely united for quite some time. Same thing with the criminals. When you'd get back to the precinct, people would bring food and various things to the station house for us, uh, posters, I mean, everything, flowers. And um, you'd see guys that you would lock up or you'd, guys that you knew are bad guys. And they would come to the station and um, give us a hug, give us, you know, throw you a pound like, hey man, you know, you know where I stand, but uh, we back you guys. We appreciate everything you do. And uh, very very heartwarming, you know, tough, you know, guys, hardcore ex-cons, but they knew it was, uh, wasn't us against them. It was us against, uh, the terrorists and mm -hmm. we weren't going to let that come between us. 
were yeah. Americans first. So that was a beautiful thing. Yeah. I never did go down there. I wanted to. I just couldn't. I wanted to see it. I'd, but I also didn't want to gawk, you know, and I didn't want to get in your in the way of you guys. Yes. So. Yeah, that was it was very uh, people's emotions were just through the roof. And so you would see there's pre cell phone era. So you'd see people coming down with cameras mm. and it would be body like, hey, what the hell are you doing? man? so people would really cops and, and, and firemen really take that personal of someone taking pictures of the, of the site. Mm. And um, yeah, so a lot of so, so a lot of cameras getting snatched and smashed by looky lose, you know, whether it was right or yeah. wrong is it's just what happened was emotions were very raw. And there were some uh, first responders that did take photos. Uh, at the time, I wasn't too keen on that. I didn't want to, I thought it was disrespectful. Looking back at it now, it would have been really interesting to see, you know, from some of the people that I worked with and, you know, just to, to have a part of that history. You know, I went back on Officer Down Memorial page and when you go to New York Police Department, person after person after person, 9-11 related illness, 9-11 related illness. I mean, pages, pages. This is something that so, happened to so many. Yes. Yeah. One of my uh, closest uh, family associates, uh, someone I grew up with, he was uh, like a default uncle named uh, Mike Quinn. I referred to him as Uncle Mike and his... Um, his wife, Madeline, and uh, ended up working for him when I went to the A3 precinct. That was one of the reasons why I was I picked to go there. He was the commanding officer, which was unbelievable. I got to work with uh, my uncle, fabulous guy, and he ended up succumbing to World Trade Center-related uh, injuries and uh, died of cancer uh, years later, which was just uh, heartbreaking. But yeah. one of the best cops, best people, that you could ask for. Like, as I'm thinking too, one of my childhood best friends, a cop named Ray Fiscaldo, he worked the 75 precinct, which I mentioned earlier. He wasn't involved in any scandal, whatever. He ended up succumbing uh, later on to his injuries as well. So rest in peace to Ray and a shout out to his family who I've never met, which I'd love to. Well, as someone who lived there during that time, I can finally thank a New York police officer who was there for all you did. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was an honor and a privilege to be there. Thank God it was. If I was back in LAPD, it would have killed me of not to have been yeah. involved in any of those in that process. So it was like one of the best and worst things to be a part of in uh, in my life. But true honor and um, definitely a yeah. privilege. Yeah. Well, I was again grateful for all of you. Yes, I, I felt it. I felt it. Uh, the citizens were uh, were fabulous. We we leaned upon them, like I said. So, thank you very much. Yeah, I feel drained. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, again, you know, I just never thought I'd meet someone who who worked down there. It was nine eleven, where I said i think it's the first time i've ever seen law enforcement thanked for anything mm. and it it was a beginning trajectory the beginning of the trajectory for me to doing what i'm doing now because when i moved out here from new york city and i'll tell you the first few years 
living outside of New York City when the anniversary of 9-11 would come. I had such a hard time not being in New York. Um, but the, out here we had uh, the ambush murders of five officers and it was this rising up of community and people coming to the precincts with flowers. You know, it just kind of reminded me of 9-11 and I thought, you can't wait until tragedy strikes to show your appreciation for law enforcement. So that well, that was my beginning of the path of supporting you guys vocally, actively. So I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's for, for anything, it doesn't get any realer than September 11th. So if we go back to LA, we'll lift our spirits a little bit. (laughs) Sure. Sure. (laughs) Um, So you were, but you were in New York until 2004. Um, So it came time for you to return to LA. You didn't want to stay in, in, in New York. You wanted to get back to LAPD? Yeah, the family stuff got squared away. So LA started re, uh, recruiting people that, that, that left. We got a very uh, innovative chief of police uh, called William Bratton, who ended up having uh, being the police commissioner prior to of NYPD. So part of his thing of getting people that left in the, the wake of the Rampart incident. He was commissioner of NYPD first? Yes, he was and then uh, chief. Okay. Yeah, he went from Boston PD to NYPD right. and then um, went to LAPD as chief. Okay. Yeah, the chief of police in LA. So I ended up getting this letter in the mail. It's like, oh, wow, I can go back and this time not have to do the academy all over again. I could just do a month, month of uh, in, in field, in service training type of thing and then come back like I never left, which uh, is what happened. Ended up getting going back to Hollywood which I didn't want, but I did. I, that's where they sent me, but ended up being where I was needed. And here we go again. <laughs> and what, uh, I mean, you have a million units that you run. Do you want to pick the favorites, the highlights, the toughest? Which ones do we want to cover? Where can we jump to? Well, since we were just talking about terrorism, once I promoted to detective, I ended up getting to go to what's called Major Crimes Division. And Major Crimes Division's task is uh, LAPD's counterterrorism wing. Again, back to what I do best, an intelligence gathering unit. And then later on being thrust into what's called the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is a unit under the purview of the FBI that's tasked with investigating anything terrorism related or anything to do with national security. So to have this task force that was created, which... um, synergizes the best of all the different police departments in the LA area. So they take, you know, seasons, detectives and cops, deputies, and match them up with uh, FBI agents. So a lot of FBI agents, not street guys, they don't, you know, they weren't street cops. So you take the best of both of federal resources and, uh, and then street cops know how and put them together with the emphasis of investigating federal crimes and terrorism and uh, national security issues. So that was great. So you're looking for people posing as everyday citizens. The the notes I have, sleeper cells, people procuring weapons. Sure, sure. Yes, all (laughs) all the above. There's all these different hostile nations that are operating within the continental U.S. So you have China, you have Iran, 
you know, all these different countries. So you have these squads that are set up to combat that. So dealing with uh, these hostile nations where part of their modus operandi is to infiltrate everyday society. So part of that is placing people that have access to critical infrastructures. So whether it's, you know, your local electrical company or, hell, it's a police division, uh, police departments. NYPD just saw it. They ended up having to arrest a police officer that was charged with being a foreign agent of, of, of China. So infiltrating all forms of government, private sector, anything that gives them access and there's some vulnerability to leverage where if China or Iran or whatever nation that's targeting us, if the time comes, they could call what's called flipping the switch and activate these people, activate these sleeper cells, or long-term gather intelligence and feed that back to the motherland. And so they could weaponize that as well. You know, a lot of espionage work and really interesting stuff. Yeah. Wow. Great stuff. So it was my form. That was my goal once I came back to LA was somehow get involved in a counterterrorism effort and to get some kind of retribution from September 11th. So wow, that was my, my way of helping out. Very small, but something. Yeah. Um, some the other notes that I have, then I know that one of your tough, one of the toughest roles, I think, for you was the juvenile division detective squad. Yes. Do you want to talk about that at all? Sure. They were probably one of the most famous cases was they dealt with um, the Michael Jackson investigation, where supposedly he was uh, sexually abusing some uh, juveniles. Yeah. And so that was like one of their big things. So we were charged with investigating anything sexual or physical abuse on a juvenile that pertained to somebody that was, or killed, if it rose to the level of homicide, they would handle those as well. And, uh, but mostly it was sexual abuse and or physical abuse, sometimes at the same time, unfortunately, that were done at the hands of a friend or a family member. So it was like a known subject, known suspect that was uh, the perpetrator of the crime. It was, it was great in a way when you'd had a good case against one of these people. Uh, because they would get some serious time and you could bring some justice to the victim. But on the flip side, it was very hard to deal with because these cases were so tough to prosecute. As you know, like Michael Jackson was never never charged uh, criminally. You know, it's open source stuff out there, whereas they, they say he, you know, he bought off the victims and you know, gave them a large sum of money so they didn't prosecute criminally. So not that that was our everyday thing that we dealt with, but the, the burden of criminal prosecution was so high and uh, almost too high in, in, my, in my, my thoughts and opinion. Why was it so high? Just because of the nature? You know, yeah, I just, it, it was very, the, the prosecution wanted either a cop-out, like a, an admission that the perpetrator did it, or some kind of overwhelming evidence, which is really tough after the fact. When you're dealing with sexual crimes, it's not like, hey, I just got robbed. I call 911. The guy's right. right there. These things take time to for the victim to come to grips with what happened to them, and especially dealing with kids. So it might come out during counseling. It might come out in dreams and drabs of little signs and symptoms that the family see, and then or it right. might come out from a teacher. So you're dealing with crimes in the past, and at, when it's sexual, the the evidence, the biological evidence, more or less, is is usually always not going to be present. So you'd have to use um, 
different means of investigative process of uh, pretextual phone calls or different things that were really hard to get. So when you would get a case and you bring it to the prosecutor, their burden of proof was so hard because as we know, we've seen a press, the re-victimization of, uh, of people involved at uh, the hands of a sexual predator is a constant in the, in, in the criminal justice system. It's almost like they're the ones on trial as we see. So you, you always had that working against you. So you have a, you know, an adult versus a kid and it, you know, the kid is always going to be second guessed. So really frustrating and, and just frustrating or just really hard to deal with just talking to a kid and trying to pull that information out of them. Oh my God, it was, it was horrendous to hear a, you know, a 13, 12 year old girl talk about a father, you know, uh, impregnating her, raping her or, you know, beating them senseless. I mean, just to hear that firsthand was just, just, just soul, soul crushing. Uh, it was horrible. And then to take that case and try to bring them justice and get uh, what's called a, a DA reject, district attorney rejecting the case saying there's not enough mm. evidence. And now you got to go back to them like you gain that trust and to tell them, hey, we try to you know bring this case to DA's office and they won't prosecute. And there's nothing else that I could do. And man, I mean, what do you do after that? If you, it would take so much for a sexual abuse victim to step forward and, and tell you those details. And now you just threw it back at them and it's like, this is all for nothing. So yeah, really, really tough to deal with. And the, the guys that are still there that I worked with, unbelievable investigators, great detectives that are doing it day in, day out, but it just wasn't for me. And that was rough, <laughs> to say yeah. the least. God bless yeah. the people that still do that. Right. I think I mentioned to you, I interviewed uh, LAPD retired uh, Moses Castillo, who worked in, I don't think that unit, I think it was sexual assault, but did handled crimes against children. Yes, and he did it for many years at the highest level and had some great cases and fantastic detective. Yeah. And the toll on him was clear. Oh, definitely. No one comes out of that unscathed. And he was there for a long time. And uh, for him to survive and thrive is a testament to him. And yeah. he's out there as retired and still carrying the flag and right. being a force multiplier out there. So hats off and to him and nothing but respect. Right. I have heard you talk about patrolling Skid Row. Mm -hmm. At what point did you do that? That was about 2008 or so after Vice. Okay. I'm fascinated by it because I think, I don't think people really know what Skid Row is. Mm -hmm. I think some people think it's just a term. Tell me what Skid Row is and tell me what it's like to patrol there. Uh, I would derisively call it, we called it Skidmark Row because it was one of the shittiest assignments. Like Central Division, where Skid Row lies, downtown LA. You either wanted to work Skid Row, you didn't, and most of the people didn't want to because it's one of the nastiest, grimiest assignments ever because you're dealing with hardcore homeless and on top of that layered with you know gang members and drug dealers but it was just it was the nastiest and the nastiest since then the homeless situation has just grown exponentially throughout la unfortunately and so there's like mini skid rows in venice and hollywood and the san fernando valley but none of that really existed everything was concentrated in downtown la and it goes back to, incredibly, back to the late 1800s. Oh. If you pull the string to it, downtown LA always had what's called a single room occupancy, what's known as a flop, flop houses, mm -hmm. SROs. So you had all the, there was a 
county jails that were downtown, hospitals downtown was called General Hospital. That was not like the TV show. It was, you know, <laughs> if you didn't have insurance and you were broke, you went there. Um, there were all the rehab places, just anyone that hit rock bottom, it lied within the confines of Central Division and in Skid Row. So ultimately, these people get released from whatever it is, from rehab, detox, the jail, you know, insane asylums, hospitals, and they just end up walking the streets like zombies, nowhere else to go because they burnt every bridge known to man, and now they're operating within Skid Row. And so it, it's your last, it's the last, the Dante's Inferno, it's, it's, you know, you hit the last ladder, and that's, that's where, you know, very few people come out of that to uh, successfully back to integrate back into society and get repatriated into normal everyday society. So we dealt with the worst of the worst, unfortunately. So, so when you say the worst of the worst, the worst of the drug users, the worst of the criminals, the worst of the mentally ill, I suppose. Absolutely. All the above, you know, everyone that, uh, that had their last few brain cells that maxed out their rap sheet before they go in away for life, you know, second strikers galore. Recid- everyone was a recidivist criminal, career criminals everywhere, rapists. Um, mm. Yeah, it was and an, an outcast from other gangs. You know, so if someone was on the outs for a gang, they would end up going there because it was kind of like a free range zone. Anyone could go there and operate and uh, lay their stake. It's almost like it's protected as a place for these people to quote unquote live. Yes. The city and the, the police department would have like these unofficial boundaries of Skid Row. So it was like this was always an area where it was kind of unofficially contained, where if you want to do that, go do that there and we'll police it to a degree. But, you know, it's pretty much the wild, wild west, literally just completely, you know, non permissive. Anything goes. Uh, you could see it, smell it, buy it, do everything there at, at, at your whim. We would uh, try to keep the lid on it. And once William Bratton, the chief, came into town, he, he made that a priority to try to to try to uh, eradicate that. But through f- various federal injunctions that came about through the years, it really hampered us as far as trying to combat that situation. So uh, the most we could do is contain it. My dad, I would bring my dad down there a couple of times. And, you know, he's a hardcore New Yorker, a Vietnam veteran. He's been everywhere, seen that, seen that. And he was overwhelmed and shocked, which I've never seen my, my old man shocked at anything. And he was just, when I was driving around, he's like, wow, I, I have never seen anything like this in my life. Wow, what the hell? How could they let this go on here in right. you know, a first world country? I don't understand how this is allowed to go on unchecked. It's uh, It befuddles me. You know, unless there's some kind of magic pill out there where you could right these wrongs. I've had uh, a couple of instances through the years of where people said, hey, when you arrested me, that was the best thing that ever happened to my life because you saved me for myself. So in jails and prisons, which, you know, that's that's the last solution. We, we want to do, we want to correct behavior before it ends up to that. But Within these institutions, there are 12-step 12 12 programs. Right. There are hospitals within the prisons and the jails, right. the psychiatric care. So there's this, this misnomer of that, the, the people just being stuck in a cell. So th- there's many, many ways to rehabilitate. They're not the best, I'll give you that, but there, is, there are capabilities if you, want, if you want to make that happen. And there, there are people 
that do make that happen. You talked about people have come back to help to thank you. It's like, the, I think you told a story about a guy who was working in the bike shop. You had arrested him. Right. That would be someone you arrested, but ended up helping him. Yes. Ended up being the best thing that ever happened to him, saving him from themselves. So when I was working undercover in Vice down in uh, the beach area of Venice, and uh, someone ended up hitting me up to buy uh, narcotics. So we ended up making a deal, uh, having a little uh, little fisticuffs with this guy. He ended up being from Brooklyn. Uh, we had that tie. So once the cuffs went on, dusted him off, arrested him, started having a conversation with him, find out what he was about. He uh, ended up getting clean and um, completely changing his life. So finishing up um, in a rest or something that, uh, in downtown LA, I see this guy rolling up to me. He's super fast on a bike. His eyes are super wide. He's got a huge ass smile. He stops right in front of me. And I was like, Hey, what's up? How can I help you? And he's like, he's just looking at me with this big smile. And, uh, he's like, you don't know who I am. I said, I said, Hey man, brother, I, I meet a lot of people, it's, you know, where I know you from. And he's like, you arrested me on the boardwalk in Venice. And then as I'm, t- he's talking to me, I, I recognize his voice and sounds like it's from Brooklyn. I'm like, yes, yes. I remember. I'm like, Hey, what's up? How are you doing? And I could see he's clean. You know, he's presenting well mentally and everything else, completely opposite when he was uh, getting arrested. He ended up, best thing that ever happened to him, he ends up going to jail, ends up uh, getting clean and sober, using the programs within the facility, ends up reuniting with his estranged wife, ends up getting a job in downtown LA at a bike shop. Uh, That's why he was on a bike and he's doing repairs (laughs) and just completely squared his life away. And it was living a, being a healthy, productive member of society again. So, I mean, it was just, uh, it was great to hear that and great to see, uh, you know, the fruits of your labors. That's what all we want to do is correct behavior, you know, mission accomplished. Godspeed to him. Yeah. When you look back at when you started out, was it what you thought it would be? Oof, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was everything that, and then some, I mean, it's led me to some crazy great paths. I mean, meeting people from all all walks of life, helping people every day, whether it's, I, mean, I knew it was going to be a fulfilling job, but I didn't think it would be as fulfilling. So it's just incredible. I, I can't, it's a super tough job and it's even harder now than ever. God bless the people that are still coming on the job. There's dribs and drabs, having a real problem with recruiting, but the people that are coming on, wow, you know, I mean, nothing but respect for them. As tough as it is, when you go through that gauntlet at the end of it, you come out of it, you're like, man, I really achieve something. I really maxed myself out. I did the best I could, maybe stumbled a few times, but man, I'm better for it. And yeah, I've definitely had my ups and downs in this career, but I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to end. Thank you, Nako, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And it was so nice to meet you, to uh, reminisce and to uh, get the message out there. So nothing yeah. but uh, admiration for what you do and what Thanks. you do to give back to my profession and, and to society as a whole. Thank you. I want to thank Nako for his decades-long commitment to his profession, for his time here with me today, and for being so emotionally generous in talking about all of it. If you would like to connect with Nako on social media, I will include his links to Instagram, Twitter, and Linktree in the episode notes. Thank you to my listeners. Your support means everything to me. And as always, my thanks to all of you in law enforcement, retired and active, for all you do and have done to protect all of us. Thanks again for listening.